If there's one thing I promise you we're going to talk about today, it's this Luna pump. And this is not Luna Classic, the old Luna. This is the new Luna. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about this over here, which is the Bitcoin pump. We haven't seen a green candle like that for so long. And today I'm going to tell you what caused this green candle because I've got all the inside info. So it's a Friday today, so we're going to have some fun. We're going to banter. We've got ourselves two good guests today. We're going to have three, but uh, someone cancelled. We do have a good, but we do have two amazing guests who disagree on absolutely everything. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's get out of bed. Let's get out of bed, guys. Get the fuck out of bed, bitch. Go. let us stop playing that song and i love you for it because I don't, I don't want to stop playing that song it gets me up and gets me going on every every day when the market's up and when the market's down all right so listen welcome back guys um i know a lot of you are saying that we're shadow banned again because you're not getting notifications so now i don't know if we're shadow banned or if it's just because we've added a new slot which is kyle dupes to start in the morning we've got a very early morning show with kyle dupes so either way no more notifications which means that you'd really got to know when we're coming to you so here we are coming to you bring you crypto love and crypto wisdom it's friday we're going to banter today you know what the, what our banters are about we've got a lot to talk about we're going to talk about uh we're going to talk about the bitcoin price we're going to talk about this big green candle we're going to talk about this we're going to talk about the lunar price we're going to talk about the lunar classic price which now seems to be coming down uh towards a sense of normality so we're going to talk about that uh we're going to talk about russia we're going to talk about china we're going to talk about the eth merge um we're going to talk about near conference next week so it's going to be a massive 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 show uh remember that our friday shows our banter shows are brought to you by none other than our favorite sponsors in the whole world and that is of course nordvpn i always say to you guys that you need to be, if you're going to be in crypto, you need to be anonymous. You want to be anonymous, you got to hide your IP address. You want to hide your IP address, you got to get a VPN. If, you, if you're surfing or if you're in crypto and you're not using a VPN, you're taking a whole lot of risks. Stop taking unnecessary risks because for about $3 a month, let's really see what, for $2.98 a month, you can protect your crypto portfolio and you can keep yourself anonymous. You can browse the internet absolutely anonymously and be, uh, be doing your crypto transactions absolutely anonymously. $2.98, and you'd be supporting NordVPN, who are the crypto VPN guys, and who are the sponsors of our Friday banters. All right, so let's not waste any more time. Remember, if you are new to the channel, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Hit the like button, and when you subscribe, hit the bell notification. If you're already subscribed, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and hit the bell notification. Otherwise, you're not going to get notifications when they do come on. And, and that's, well, I don't know. I don't know when you're going to get notifications again, because between the shadow ban that we've got and Kyle Dupes launching a show in the morning, we're completely screwed. Anyway, let's get into the big show today. Uh, let's look at this over here. In fact, let's look at this first. So let's look at this big green candle in Bitcoin. Um, and obviously, everyone's asking what caused this big green candle on Bitcoin. Well, it came when the Chinese inflation data came out better than expected. So earlier on today, what happened was China announced their inflation data. Now, I don't understand why people still believe the Chinese data, because we know that Chinese data is very manipulated. Anyway, be that as it may, the Chinese inflation data uh, was positive. It showed that, infl that inflation unexpectedly slowed to 2.5% year on year, uh, which means that people are thinking that inflation is coming down. And remember that we have inflation numbers coming out of the United States next week. So I think on the 13th, we have the inflation numbers coming out in, in, in the United States. Um, right now, the Atlanta Fed or the Cleveland Fed is actually forecasting that the, the CPI in the U.S. may actually come down quite a bit next week. And that kind of makes sense because if you look at the oil price and you look at what oil has been doing in the last couple of weeks, well, look at this chart on oil. So you pretty much got this huge downtrend over here. 
uh, in the oil price. It is starting to climb up today. We'll talk about what made it climb up today. But you've got oil coming down from a recent high of about $123. It's now back at $91. And that might affect the inflation numbers next week. In fact, it will affect the inflation numbers next week. But be that as it may, be cautious because the Fed's Bullard, you know Bullard, the guy who's, he, he's never bullish. He's always, he's always completely, completely, completely hawkish. He came out today and what did he say? He tried to ruin the party. He said, even if we do get a good CPI report, it shouldn't affect the September Fed call. So we're going to get the, the Fed meeting at the end of September um, to decide the fate of interest rates or the interest rates increases for this month. Right now, this is what the market's betting on. 86% of the market says that the Fed is going to raise by 75 basis points. So we can pretty much assume that the Fed is raising by 75 basis points. So that's what happened. Another good chart that we should be looking at, another good, 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 good chart to be looking at is this chart over here. So this is the dollar index, the Dixie. And if you remember, this is the chart that compares the value of the dollar to a whole lot of other currencies. Primarily, or 57% the Dixie, is actually made up of the euro. 13% is made out of the Japanese yen, 11% is made out of the British pound, and less than 1% is made out of the Canadian dollar, the Swedish krona, and the Swiss franc. Anyway, so what we saw is we saw this dollar index actually coming to a very, very, very critical level. So that's the level over here. You can see it's been going parabolic, and we're now at a point where we're just touching the edge of, edge of the parabola. And it could break down. It could break down. So question is, question is, what is causing this? How come, why all of a sudden is the dollar getting, is the dollar getting a lot weaker? Why is this, this, this chart starting to trend down? Well, that's pretty simple. Yesterday, we had the ECB, the European Central Bank, and they raised interest rates by 75 basis points. So now what, the, what you're realizing is that, or what the world's realizing is that we're probably going to get an increasing interest rate environment in Europe. And if we do get an, in, an increasing interest rate environment in Europe, that means that more money is going to flow into euros, and that's going to make money flow out of, out of the dollar. And so what we're getting is we're getting this dollar index starting to break down. I'm not convinced yet. I need the dollar index to break straight through that level. And if it does break straight through that level, I want it to break through another level, which is somewhere, somewhere along this line over here. And if we can break below this kind of level, if we can break below 106 or 107, then I'll be convinced that the dollar index is actually starting to come down. So that's what's happening today on the markets. Uh, also happening today on the markets before we start our banter. Let's quickly look at all the other charts. You've got the NASDAQ. Let's just see, quickly see what's happening. NASDAQ up 1.34%. So that seems to be pretty bullish. You've got Ethereum preparing for the merge, 1,720. And you can see that we went, there was this trend line. We broke straight through the trend line. We retested it. So it was a perfect, perfect, perfect retest. And then we're starting to break up again ahead of the merge. We've got to talk about the merge. We're going to talk about whether the merge is going to be successful. The merge is just a few days away. I've heard some rumors that the merge may actually be canceled. don't know if those are true, but we'll ask our guests when they come in, in a second. Um, also today, look at Luna Classic. Some kind of rationality coming into the market. So you've got Luna Classic. It was up as high as 5.9, so 0 0.000059. Uh, it is now back down at uh, 0, 0.00043. To me, this is probably the biggest short of the market. If you want to take a short, you want to be guaranteed to make money long term, take a short here. Just watch your funding rates. Um, and then you've got Luna. We're going to talk about why Luna's pumping. Look at this. Luna's up at $6.10, up 219%. What the hell is going on here? Holy, holy crap. I think it's a good time to bring in our guest. So let's start off by bringing in Hasib. Hasib, welcome back, bro. Hey, good to see you, Ren. Lots going on. I mean, ahead of the merge. One, we were, we're, we're like three, four days away from the merge. And I mean, lots going on all of a sudden. There was nothing going on a day, a day or two ago. It seemed like a, a graveyard. And now you look at the markets like, wow, everything is exploding. It does seem like people are feeling a little bit of signs of life again in the market where normally it's been pretty sleepy the last week or two. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you think caused or caused these signs of life? What do you think's changed in the last 24 to 48 hours? Okay, well, first, first, I should say, I'm not a trader. Uh, all the stuff, the, the magic tricks you're pulling off of those charts, they're very impressive to me. I learned a lot. Um, I, I would say, look, at, at this point, the, the very short version for you know, a small brain like me is that crypto and macro are correlated. Whatever the NASDAQ does is whatever is crypto going to do. So NASDAQ is up, crypto is up. I think if you try to think about it more deeply than that, you're going to break your brain, or at least you're going to break my brain. Um, but overall, my, the first thing I do in the morning when I wake up now is I check the Wall Street Journal. And that's how I know whether crypto's up or down. 
So I must say, um, I realized something this week that something, start, that something started to happen this week, which was highly, highly, highly encouraging for me. It was, it was highly, highly encouraging for me. What it is, is, is this. I want to show it to you guys so that you can actually see it. So you look at the Bitcoin chart and you look at the Bitcoin dominance chart. I don't know if you guys follow dominance at all, but you've had Bitcoin dominance coming down, right? So you've had Bitcoin dominance coming down in a down market. So usually in a down market, everyone flocks to Bitcoin as the store of value, right? And what we're seeing now is we're seeing people going into altcoins when the market is going down. So people are trading out of Bitcoin, going into Ethereum and other altcoins. In fact, you can probably see it quite well in, in another chart, which is this ETH BTC chart. I'm not a chartist. I'm just looking at the chart. So that's the ETH BTC chart. And you can kind of see um, how ETH has performed relative to Bitcoin since July. And then I realized that this is actually a very, very, very good thing. I'll tell you why I think it's a very good thing. Because... If Bitcoin is truly an inflation hedge, and that's what we've been pitching it as, we've been saying, look, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. It's meant to be inflation, inflation-proof money, government-proof money, et cetera, et cetera. In times when the governments have told us that, there's, that they're going to tighten, and if you think about what tightening actually is, tightening means they're going to create negative inflation. They're going, to, they're going to stop spending, they're going to take money out of the economy, and they're going to create negative inflation. We don't actually need Bitcoin as badly as we do when they are printing money, right? So, for the first time, I want to disambiguate two things because you're using the word inflation to mean multiple things here, right? There are two kinds of inflation. There's price inflation, which is what we've been getting since November. That's the big thing. Everybody, you know, oh, inflation numbers, this inflation numbers, that. And then there's monetary inflation, right? And the two things are very different. So early on when the, when the pandemic stimulus started, we had a huge amount of monetary inflation, meaning that the money supply increased really rapidly. But we did not get price inflation meaning that prices were, did not start to go up, right? They started to go up for financial assets, and that's the thing that we were all reveling in, is the fact that crypto prices were going up, stock prices were going up. But generally, what we think of as price inflation usually is tied to things like CPI. CPI did not go up during the time of COVID, right? So when we say... About, go ahead, go ahead. I'm talking about monetary inflation. And monetary now that the Fed is, is creating monetary deflation, if you want to call it that, People are right. saying, look, we don't actually need Bitcoin as badly as we needed it when the government was going to print money uh, in perpetuity or, or, or continue to print money, right? And so I think for the first time, we're actually seeing a decoupling of alts and Bitcoin, where people are actually pricing them correctly. For the first time, people are pricing Bitcoin as the store of value and alts as this technology that's really going to change the world 10 years from now. And so it's the first time that I've actually felt that for once, I actually feel like the market, as much as I don't want Bitcoin to go down, I now for the first time feel like the market is pricing Bitcoin and altcoins correctly and that altcoins should be doing better than Bitcoin in this kind of environment. That's, that was the one realization I had this week that was like, wow, great. We've really come a long way. I, I actually agree I, with that. I, I agree with that. Or do we disagree? Great. Do we I'll disagree. disagree. I'll disagree. You go ahead. Yeah, we do awesome. disagree. So look, I, I, the reason I agree is I think Bitcoin is increasingly owned by institutional investors. And they think of it, I think, the way, Ron, that you're talking about, which is, I think, in, even inflation hedge is sort of, I mean, we use that term, but that's not exactly what it is. It's, I've heard it described slightly differently more as it's, like, it's a proxy for government irresponsibility, right? And so when the government is being irresponsible, the price goes up. And when, or, and when the government is being responsible and doing the responsible thing, the price goes down. And in effect, the governments are now doing the responsible thing, which is like, okay, inflation is too high. Let's raise the rates. So they're actually being more responsible. So the price comes down. And everything else used to trade like Bitcoin because every, we only had, the market only had one mental model for what, what these things could be, which was Bitcoin. And now we're starting to realize actually those things are very different than Bitcoin. And so there, there is, I think, this like internal decoupling that starts happening. I, I mean, most of, the, most of the altcoins I think are still not that useful, you know, the technology is not that good. Like, I mean, there's a lot of sort of scammy stuff out there. So I think that decoupling still needs to happen. And so looking at the aggregate charts is, is a little tough, but I, I do think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, Brock. Yeah, I, think I, mean, I would say, I think this decoupling hasn't happened, right? Like how, because there's a, you know, three, 4% spread between how much Bitcoin's up and how much Ethereum is up. Like I, when, when the two were actually decoupled, right, is like Bitcoin is up like 5% today and all the alts are down or all the alts no, are I think, I think the ETH-BTC ratio is, is the signal that, yes. that at least those two things are starting to be, be thought of very differently. And those two market participants are starting to, to decouple. Right, but I think that's mostly because of the merge, right? Like post the merge, sure. once all the Ethereum craziness dies down and we kind of know what happened, then what I suspect that you'll see is a reversion to the mean, which is that the two will be extremely highly correlated. Right now, both, everything in crypto is responding to macro. There's very little else happening besides the merge. 
that's actually affecting price. And then maybe this craziness going on with, with, with Luna. With Luna. Um, yeah. The overall picture, I think right now, and probably for the next year or so, is that macro is in the driver's seat. And we're going to fixate on these like little differences here and there. I think most of these are because of the merge, and it's, it's such a huge event. But a week from now, the merge will be done. And my, my prediction would be that correlation goes back to where it was. Well, let's talk about the merge then. So, I mean, we're a couple of days away from the merge. I mean, depending on, on where you look at it, uh, we are four days, eight hours and 20 minutes away from the merge. Sorry, five days, uh, six hours and 18 minutes away from the merge main net. Um, I mean, you know, the, the merge is happening at this block 5875 or this difficulty level 5875, which, which the, that model forecasts when it's going to happen. I mean, we've had the first part of the merge, which is uh, Bellatrix, which is effectively preparing the chain for the merge. What happens next week? How do you see next week playing out? I see, I'm well, sure I've, you been, I've been reading. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, I, so I'm not an expert on all the different actual phases before the merge gets in place. So I don't want to I don't want to uh, speak out of, out of line there. But my understanding is that there's some speculation going on right now that the merge may actually get delayed because of the um, because so the merge is specified at a particular block. And of course, uh, the way that you try to guess, you know, for those countdown timers is you take the average block time and you say, okay, assume the average block time is going to be the same from now until this block that projects out to like five days from now, something like that. Um, so, some so, people so are predicting. Actually, it doesn't work like that. So I explained to you the first part of the, the merge, which was the, the upgrade that was made around the six, that was related to block. Okay. Now the next part of them, and then a difficulty bomb went off, which makes mining ETH more and more and more difficult difficult now when it gets to a certain difficulty level which is the, which is this number 5875 at that point the merge officially starts to happen now you can see the difficulty bomb is taking up the the the, the, the difficulty so when the difficulty gets to this point over here that's when the merge the merge happens and that happens somewhere around september 13th if based on based on on, on current models um, and then i guess next week we get the merge. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Clearly, I'm 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 not super far. I'm not trading the merge, so I have I have no dog in the fight of exactly when it happens. But um, it it does seem likely at this point, and, and this is kind of what we're hearing for some miners that people are starting to already start to turn their machines off, um, because it, it, it's kind of an ordeal to turn your machines off as a miner. And so we may see big drops in hash rate before the merge actually goes through. Because people realize, like, okay, it's over. Like, it's, it's time to it's time to move away from Ethereum. Like, you know, the last day is not really worth mining for. Um, so, it seems like that that may slightly delay things. I don't exactly know how the mechanics work of how it's how how the difficulty bomb hits a certain threshold. But um, yeah, TLDR, I think there's there's still obviously a chance that the merge fails. Like we've done it on a few test nets now, but doing anything in production, like the main, you know, the super different. The, it's super different. It's super different. And yeah. there's so many moving pieces that I, I think I, there's, I, we still have to price in like five to 10% chance of failure. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's two things I worry about. So one, um, I was just randomly recently, I was reading about, uh, 1999, the Mars orbiter crash. Do you guys remember this? Um, yes. what, what ended up happening was like Lockheed Martin, um, and, and NASA were working on, on two different parts of the system. And the Lockheed guys used, uh, English system, like, uh, you know, miles, and NASA uses kilometers. And so nobody caught it. The thing got to Mars. Like one system sent another system data in the wrong units. And basically the whole thing crashed. And they lost like a $200 million thing that was supposed to be like foolproof, right? And that's that's like NASA and Lockheed building avionic systems like, you know, with, with years and, and decades of experience. I think they sort of missed that. So one like really common failure in these really complex systems is when you integrate everything together and test it end to end, it's very complicated. And, and you could certainly imagine there's, there's, there's almost certainly going to be one of those bugs. Integration bugs are, are really, really hard to catch. Uh, and then the question is really how severe is the bug? The second thing I, I, I worry about is, you know, it's kind of maybe Hasid, you, you probably have thoughts on this is it, this is like test nets are kind of like playing poker with potato chips, you know, like it's, it, it, you don't really know how people are going to react until you're, you're on mainnet and then you're playing with real dollars. And I, I always worry when you get these really complex systems, you know, no amount of formal verification or, or you, know, you know, human auditing is going to catch this stuff. And, and what's really going to have to happen is you have to play with real dollars. And then I think there's going to be some second and third order effects of that. So I think the merge likely does happen. But then on the other side of that, I think there's just going to be crazy volatility for, for a couple of weeks. So I think I agree with you. And I actually think that when I look at Ethereum today, uh, I think they caught up a chart of Ethereum today. I think that it's probably 
fairly priced into the move. And I think that any surprise now could only be a downside surprise. So everyone's factored in a successful merge. Like everyone's, yeah. you know, I think if you look at the sentiment, the sentiment is 99% of people probably think we're going to get a, a successful merge. What's not priced in is a couple of hiccups along the way. And I think that when those hiccups happen along the way, and, you know, maybe they won't happen, but if they do happen, then I think people will start to panic. So for me, I wouldn't be longing East at this point. I think if you're going to be trading it, there's probably more... There's probably more downside risk to reward than there is upside risk to or upside risk or reward, risk to reward at this stage. That's. I, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I think the merge is difficult to price in. Uh, the merge. So I, I was getting into debate with somebody last week about this because they were well, the merge is kind of like the happening. It's already priced in, like da 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 da. And I think the merge is fundamentally very different than something like the happening. Um, I, I think happenings for Bitcoin are basically always priced in. I think like the idea that there's all this magic around happenings is, is bullshit. But for the merge in particular, the merge is, is a one-time event that has risk. And we didn't know exactly when it was going to take place. And it changes the dynamics of Bitcoin. Or sorry, uh, changes the dynamics of Ethereum after the merge is completed, right? And there's certain things about the merge that are hard to price in. So one element of the merge is difficult to price in is that once the merge is done, Ethereum becomes ESG which means that people who can't buy Ethereum, institutional investors who are not allowed to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, all of a sudden they can buy Ethereum now. How do you price that in? What, what effect is that going to have on the price, right? This is a flow that's likely to come to Ethereum. Um, I think it's very difficult for the market to predict and to have a good mental model of what those flows are going to look like. Um, and right now, people are, I, I don't think there's a lot of um, appetite for overstretching in that direction, especially when there, there is significant risk to the downside that the merge could fail, get delayed, uh, get reversed. So I think if the merge is successful, almost certainly it's going to have, well, I shouldn't say almost certainly, probably it will have a, a positive effect on the price of Ethereum. But uh, I think happens, something like that is not true for the happening. What happens three days afterwards when people say, okay, we've had a successful merge, ETH has run 80, 100% in the last uh, month <laughs> in anticipation yeah. of this merge. Hold on a second. This merge is actually a real nothing burger because transactions are still as expensive. Transactions are still as slow. In fact, the only thing that the merge is doing is it's cutting the emissions, so maybe making ETH deflationary depending on, on how much it's used and making ETH, uh, um, as you say, ESG-friendly. But that's kind of priced in because that's been priced in from a long time ago. I well, think the, third element, the third element is the supply dynamics. The supply dynamics when the merge happens are huge, which is that all of a sudden, a lot of ether that is currently circulating now gets staked because the opportunity cost of staking has gone down, right? That lowers yeah. the supply of ether. If demand is constant or goes up because ether is now ESG and supply is decreased, like that, that like the, the very simple analysis of that is okay. The, if, well, if no, supply the, goes down, the, demand goes up, price goes up. In the long term, that's true. But I mean, there's still, I mean, there's what, nine months before you can actually withdraw your staked ETH? Like, you know, do you, do you think- well, But that nine I'm, months is now much more solid before the, before the merge, right? Before the merge, you don't really know how long it's going to be. Once the yeah, merge but, is done, it's, like, it's like, now we have a lot more. But is it like really a big difference, like nine months versus like nine months and five days? Is that like really? A big well, the other the other big difference is that the institutional custody providers yeah. don't allow staking right now. They will only have staking go live once the merge is complete. Yeah, because got, they because you they got they Coinbase for their clients. You got Coinbase coming in with their with, with their staking. You got Binance uh, USA come. In fact, Binance USA is actually taking deposits now at a six percent interest rate. I mean, I, I think, Steve, I think you, everything you're saying is correct in the long term. Like, there are a lot of institutional investors waiting, and, and I think the ESG stuff really does help. We get, I mean, we get asked that question all the time. I just don't think it happens, like, next week. You know, I think, I think it just takes a long time for that to play out. And it's going to take, like, 12 months for that, that capital to actually flow. These, it's, not, it's not like the college endowments are sitting there, like, on Coinbase, logged in, like, next Thursday, like, ready to hit the buy button, you know? It's going to, it's going to take, you know, the holidays will come and then it'll be like next year and they'll say, okay, we feel good about this. And so I think it's like a buy the rumor, sell the news situation. It's going to, it's going to, yeah. there's going to be a lot, a lot of volatility next year. Next I, must week, say, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but over the last couple of days, since the difficulty bomb happened and probably a little even before that, you've had the miners shifting their um, hash, hash power to other proof of work uh, or other, other, other tokens where they can use their GPU mining power. And so what you've had is you've had these random coins. I'm going to say random. Some of them aren't that random. So you've had Ethereum Classic. And if you look at, let's just look at Ethereum Classic. So that's Ethereum Classic's hash rate uh, chart. That's, that's come out. Um, 
this is Flux. So I'll just show you the there. So that's what that's their uh, hash rate chart. This is another one, uh, Ergo. I think I've got their hash rate chart somewhere. So here we go. I've got Ergo's hash rate chart. Again, it was pretty much dead, and all of a sudden you got this this huge spike. Uh, another one is Casper, K-A-S-P-A, which is a, a a great blockchain. All of a sudden got this this hash rate spike, and as a result of all these hash rate spikes, you've also had huge price spikes. So I'll show you what the price has done on some of these tokens. So uh, just give you an example. This is the Ergo uh, token. And this is the price in the last 90 days. You can kind of see that the price has gone from $1.80 and is now trading at about $4.86. Um, it's the same thing if you look at things like Ethereum Classic. I'm going to show you one more in a second, which will absolutely blow your mind. Then I've got a question for you guys. So if you look at Ethereum Classic, uh, this is the price chart of Ethereum Classic. It, went, it came from $15.97. It's now trading at $38. So you would have made 100 something percent on your money. And then the one which I watched this, I've been watching for the last couple of days is Casper, um, which is a great piece of tech. If you haven't looked into this technology, it's an absolute mind-blowing piece of tech written by a, a Harvard grad, uh, absolutely beautiful piece of tech. And that has gone up from, this has gone up 100x in price. Now, the reason why these things are going up in price is because all the miners are moving their hash rates across to all these tokens. That's the only explanation is because People are following, they're saying, look, if the miners are going, the price has to be going. And there are, there are other coins as well. To me, it feels like the wrong reasoning. Why would you follow hash rate into a coin? That's, that's the part I'm not understanding. Have I missed something? I think it's the other way around. It's that the hash rate has gone to these coins, and now the miners who are mining them are incentivized to market the coins and to tell a story around them. Otherwise, they have no way to actually exit their investment. Right. So it's symbiotic, right? In the same way that you know, the ETHPAL fork, you don't just do the ETHPAL fork, you also market the ETHPAL fork, you tell stories about it, you tell everybody that ETHPAL is going to be huge, you start, you know, trying to get projects to get onto ETHPAL. I, I have to imagine that, look, if you have a big pile of GPUs, and the price of GPUs are cratering in the secondary markets, right? So as the merge has gotten closer, all these GPUs are now coming way, way, way down in price, because people realize that almost everything else in crypto that's valuable is proof of stake. There's almost nothing left that's not ASIC that is generalizable GPU compute. There's just so few coins that are out there that can that can absorb that kind of GPU capacity. And so the GPU prices are cratering. These guys need a way to monetize what's remaining of their GPU investments. And so they find some long tail tokens, they tell a big story about it and they get retail to buy it. The question is how long can that last? I, I, I don't know, but it, it doesn't see, I agree with you. It's the other way around, right? The causation is reversed. Hash rate doesn't make something valuable. Something valuable attracts hash rate. The causation goes in the other direction. Yeah, it's, I must say, it sounds a little bit weird to me because it, it kind of feels like there's going to be a huge hangover at some point where all these people say, oh, well, we bought this coin up because the hash rate came. But we actually don't need all this hash rate because no one's using these chains. No one's actually yeah. using any of the applications on these chains. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's the crux of it. If people aren't using the thing, it doesn't matter. And, you know, it's a temporary blip. The market might, you know, there might even be bots looking at things like hash rate. And then saying, hey, this thing hasn't moved, like these things tend to correlate, you know, wh whichever way the correlation goes. And, and because they're so low liquidity, the price will move. But, you know, fundamentally, if nobody's going to use it, then, then it just doesn't matter. Six months from now, it'll, it'll all correct. So that means that a bunch of hash rate. It's like it's like one of these like crazy regimes, like building palaces, you know, just like show off how awesome they are. It doesn't make the country richer. It actually just wastes resources. I, you know, I was actually just looking. I was poking around, Ron, when you're looking at this and I was looking at the Monero hash rate, which hasn't moved, which is kind of interesting. And the price over the last three months actually has gone up, you know, from a, when it cratered down to 100. So that might be like an interesting counterpoint. Right. It's just like, are these things actually, you know, like Monero has been going up, but the hash rate hasn't been going up. So I'm kind of curious what's going on there. And like, then the question, of course, is, well, Monero, people actually do use Monero. Why isn't the hash rate going up? Like, why isn't any of this stuff going over to Monero? I think it's because Monero, you need ASICs. You need ASIC miners for Monero. So I, I, I don't but then they broke ASICs. Yeah, no, they broke, I bet they broke ASICs a few years ago. And okay. I like thought that they out. switched to like a, a, a proof of work algorithm that required CPUs rather than GPUs. Oh, did they even do you that? Used to do like general compute. They would like they write like random programs, and you have to know complete these random programs. Something why like they, that. They don't have GPU coming over. Yeah. I thought I thought it was GPUable. Okay, I, I'm probably wrong on that. But I was trying to look at this too. Basically, I was trying to find coins that are moving, but the hash rate is not moving. I um, could be wrong. I could be wrong. And, I mean, and, but it, this is like sufficiently high liquidity too that you just wouldn't be able to move it. Right, as a miner, you wouldn't be able to go in and get enough supply that you could like move the price around. So, um, I, must say, I, think, I suspect it's low liquidity stuff. 
I think following hash rate is a big mistake. I think yeah. what hash rates eventually going to realize is that it's actually you should be following usage and developers right. and not hash rate. I think it's a, the wrong metric. And I, I must say, I think that people that have, have rushed into Ethereum Classic, um, I think they're going to land up paying the price for it because I don't know anything or anyone that's building anything on Ethereum Classic. Have you guys met anyone building anything on Ethereum Classic? No, of course not. Except Barry Silbert. Except Barry Silbert. What is he building on Ethereum Classic? I think he just owns it. <laughs> um, what do you think of the ETH proof of work fork? Do you think, I mean, there was a lot of talk about the proof of work fork and there was a lot of hype around the proof of work fork. What I saw this week is that protocols like Aave and a whole lot of others actually had to suspend ETH borrowing because people were borrowing Ethereum so that they could get the proof of work fork. It, it went absolutely crazy. And then I looked at the one piece of data that we do have on this fork. And it's pretty much gone from being at one point about 7% of the value of ETH to now being about 1.8% with zero liquidity. So it's almost like people are pricing this at like less than 1.5% of the value of the network. We had a chat about this last time. I don't know if you remember. And it was much further away. And we, we kind of thought, it's, it, you guys said it's going to be a nothing burger. You said no one's going to go there because USDC is not supporting it. USDT is not supporting it. The DeFi applications, therefore, by default, can't support it. Now we're three, four days away, and the market's telling you, on the one hand, that there's no value to this fork. But on the other hand, people are borrowing Ethereum like crazy, and they're selling their ST ETH to get as many real Ethereum as they can so that they can get both tokens, because that's the only arbitrage player. What happens after the merge with this ETH fork? Does, does anything happen with it? I mean, the thing to realize is that the, when, when people are pricing the, um, the ETH power fork, at this price, that doesn't mean they're not pricing it like a weekend. They're pricing it for the moment that it gets released, which means that probably what's going to happen with ETHPOW is that there's going to be a news cycle. People are going to talk about ETHPOW. Some retailer are going to buy it because they're going to read the story. And when people read stories, they buy things. Uh, and everybody is going to turbo dump their ETHPOW on the retail that shows up. Probably what's going to happen is that this thing is going to be worth 1% to 2% of Ethereum for about 20 seconds. And then it's just going to absolutely collapse on itself as everybody rushes to sell. Like people are not borrowing ether because they they want to hold this thing for a long run, right? They they want to get they want to get the airdrop and then dump it as fast as they humanly can. Yeah, it's a real bummer. It's I feel really bad. You know, like man, these are the kinds of things where you you talk to like your Uber driver, and he's like, oh, I was reading the news and I like read about this thing and I could get some free ether and then they go buy it and then they just get dumped on. And it's just so terrible. This is just like. The people that are doing this or like trying to pump this and trying to make this happen are just like going to dump on retail. It's just such a terrible thing to do. Yeah, I don't know if they are going to dump on retail because I don't think there's going to be much to dump. Right now, you're talking about 1.8% yeah, yeah. on zero. It, it won't work. Yeah. yeah, it won't work. But that's that's kind of the play. Like at least at least when this was happening with Bitcoin back in 2017, when you had the the, the block debate and you know you had you had Jihan Roger, there was there was like a philosophical thing there, you know, of like. Hey, look! How should we be scaling Bitcoin? And, and they, they they put real dollars behind it. There was a real hash program behind it. They actually threw some developers. It, you know, that at least felt somewhat principled. This this just feels like a straight money grab where somebody's trying to ex ultimately exploit retail, which is just like that frustrates me. It's just like that you know, they know what they're doing too. It's not it's not like they don't know what they're doing. You know, it's it's just they're gonna they're gonna that, that that's the whole play is to try to exploit people. I think I agree with you. Let's 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 pivot quickly. Let's talk about this. I think everyone in the chat's going crazy about this. This is the Luna pump. So you got Luna at six bucks. It's at two hundred and eleven percent. Okay, that's 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 where we're at. Um, is, that, is that a daily candle? Oh my god! That is a daily candle. That is a daily candle indeed. <laughs> so we've had a two hundred and eleven percent, two hundred and twelve percent pump. Um, What's the volume on that? Um, okay, I'm only looking at it on one exchange, so it's probably not the best, but it's, it's a high volume pump. Now this is the Luna Classic, which is the old chain. So this is the the Luna Classic pump, which over the last couple of days has gone up. Uh, 425%, and that's because they introduced a token burn. So you've got this absolute, in my opinion, meme chain, real meme chain. Um, can't really imagine that, that anything can come out of this chain. They introduced a 1.2 or 1.8% tax, and the chain is starting to pump, and people are, there are rumors that they want to take this chain to 10 cents, and then after 10 cents, they want to take it up to a dollar. Okay. Do you, I mean, is there any reason for anyone to be buying Luna Classic now? I mean, is there any chance that Luna Classic becomes like so the absurd. next Dogecoin? 
Uh, that, I mean, that I don't think is crazy, actually, because it's, it's such a ridiculous story. Do you disagree, Steve? Do you think this is just going straight to zero? I actually, um, after Luna blew up, I actually bought my first ever Luna hoodie because I feel like it's kind of like having like a Lehman Brothers mug or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of totally. you you show like, look, I was there. I was there. I was like, I was there for the crazy, the craziness of 2022. Um, seeing this tax is just it's so incredibly absurd. Right. Like so literally the way the tax works is that anytime you transfer tokens with this tax, you lose 1.2% of all the tokens you transfer, which means now that exchanges are not going to list this shit. Because if you want to transfer between a cold wallet and a hot wallet, you lose 1.2% of the asset, right? So like all exchanges the exchanges have to have, do that. But all the big exchanges have pledged support for it. Binance has pledged all the big exchanges have pledged support for it. I because mean, I, know, I think because they know they're gonna get the community. They know that with Luna comes a huge community. Of people who want to save their their fortunes in Luna, and I must say, I, I've seen some tokens with a tax before. It's not the worst thing in the world. It does reduce token supply. I mean, I, I can't justify. I can't justify it here. I don't think that this token's ever got a, a chance in hell of, of 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 recovering. But I mean, the meme generation loves. This. I mean, just just think about this, right? Like you you let's say you want to move your assets to a multi sig. And you want to move from that multi-sig to another thing to go pay somebody or you put it into custody. You've already lost 3% of all your, all your assets. Just moving it. Not okay. even spending it, four, not sending it to anyone. You've made 425% on the way up. So you lose three. That's well, not, and, <laughs> and, and, I mean, is that, how, how, how different is that than small transactions on ETH? I mean, if you buy, I mean, think about how like crazy gas gets. I mean, are you saying course, it prices is, people out? Well, no, it's that it's that you're actively destroying wealth, right? Like you're destroying wealth in a way that's proportional to the amount of wealth. The idea, if you have fixed transaction fees, that you're paying transaction fees for block space. And if you have enough money, you can amortize that over a large group of people, which is why when you're on an exchange, you don't have to worry about transaction fees because you know most oh, small balls are not withdrawing from an exchange where it's going to cost them like four or five bucks. I mean, but, so people can yeah, figure I mean, out the right way to do it. You can't do that if you have taxes. You, well, I mean, isn't it... I, I think I agree with you, but I'm kind of thinking through this. I mean, like, aren't exchange fees effectively the same tax? Like, doesn't isn't like Coinbase's like weighted fee rate effectively like one one point five percent? You know, don't they effectively? No, no, but pay the people who are paying that? it, the people who are paying yeah. it, are not going to be like. Look, if you have five bucks in Coinbase, right? Yeah, you're not going to pay the fee to withdraw to an Ethereum wallet because you know you'll have almost nothing left, right? So you can say, look, I'm not even going to bother with that, uh, and it it. Because of that, like if you're a big player, big players are, are more likely to withdraw because the fees become infinitesimal relative to their capital base, right? Totally. But that but, goes but away. It, but you're that still, but you're still paying on like the, you know, you're, you're buying ETH or, or every time you do a USD ETH trade, you're, you're you know, or a USD, you know, or, or a Bitcoin ETH trade on, on something like Coinbase or Binance, you're paying 1% fees, right? Rel relative to the potential appreciation of what, what you're trading, you, you, are, you are effectively paying 1%. So I, I agree with you that like if you're just moving to custody, it seems, it seems kind of silly to, to pay a one percent tax, but if like the majority of activity on the chain is effectively people trading, isn't it effectively just a one percent fee, the same way it is on Coinbase? Yeah, but that's not the majority of activity on the chain. But like, at the same time, what are people trading on Lunk? I, I think it's I think it's even better than what Abishal says because it's it's not only is it a tax, but that tax actually makes you richer because if you're holding tokens in that chain, then it's actually making it deflationary because you remember you're burning one one point two percent of the supply every time it happens. So I kind of understand this. I mean, despite that, I've taken a short position. I took it at 0, 0.00051. I'm a little bit in. <laughs> I still think it's the best short on the market. But I can't explain this, which is the Luna pump up at six bucks. I mean, is that just like a sympathy pump? I mean, what is that? I have no idea on this one. No idea. No idea. I, it, it looks like it. I was trying to see if I could find any news about this, and it just it seems like people are mostly just laughing. Okay, tell us in so, the comments. Guys, tell us in the comments why you think Luna is pumping, uh, and I mean, I'm dying to understand this. Obviously, I've been looking. I spent about an hour before the show looking at this. I couldn't find one reason for Luna to pump for for this Luna to pump. They haven't even introduced the tax, so no idea, no idea. Um, want to pivot to something else? Tornado Cash. The last time we spoke, Hasib, you were quite hopeful that there would be some kind of uh, fight for Tornado Cash, and I said that I didn't believe it was going to happen. Because I thought that they they killed Tornado Cash before it grew to be big enough, and then this week Coinbase announced that they're actually funding a lawsuit brought about by six people uh, in the U.S. challenging the Treasury Department to sanction uh, Tornado Cash. 
What do you think? It's great to see this kind of leadership from Coinbase. I was not expecting this. I was expecting Coinbase to roll over. So I have to give them massive kudos for this. Uh, you also saw Coin Center also issuing uh, a challenge to, to OFAC. So it looks like, I mean, one thing is very clear. When OFAC issues sanctions, generally they are not stories. Usually nobody cares when the sanctions list gets updated. Um, this uh, sanctioning of Tornado Cash was huge news. Activated a ton of people. We had, you know, Congress people writing Treasury, asking them to explain what the hell was going on. Like, this was not what OFAC was expecting as a response to, uh, to, to you know, last time that they, that they um, sanctioned a mixer, it was Blender. And, you know, there was like a little story and then we were like, okay, let, you know, let's move on. Yeah, they sanctioned uh, a, a mixer, I, why wouldn't they? But that was, that was really different though, Steve, because like Blender was a, was a centralized. That was no, a of course, that's my point. Yeah. That's my, that's my yeah. point. That's my point is that this was not what they were expecting as a response. They thought yeah. that this would be just another quiet thing. And they realized like, wow, the whole industry, if not, you know, the whole tech industry has really activated to this question of, is it okay for you to sanction a smart contract or not? So, oh, so backing up for a second, do, do I mean I don't know if everybody understands the nuance here. Like this is this is like this is a very 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 fundamental issue of crypto. This is this gets at like the heart. This gets at the heart of software. We we actually just had um, we we do an annual founder summit for all of our portfolio companies, and we had Cindy Cohn, who's the executive director of the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, come and give a talk. Cindy is the most badass lawyer, and so she gave us a whole overview of this. She is literally the person. If you go back to the '90s. Um, there's this really seminal case, Bernstein v. Department of Justice. And so there's this guy who's a PhD student at Berkeley, and he wanted to publish his cryptography. And back in the 90s, cryptography was considered uh, a munition. It was an arm, right? So you had to register it with the government before you could ship your cryptography. So they had to approve your paper getting published. Um, and so this guy was like, this is crazy. I'm just publishing math. Like, this, how can the government tell me not to publish math? That doesn't make any sense. It's just letters and numbers on a page. Uh, and so he sued. And so Cindy was his lawyer. And she, she sued, they sued the government and they said, you're not allowed to restrict my ability to publish a research paper and, and my ability to publish math, ultimately. Um, it doesn't matter if a computer can interpret it, it's just, it's, it's words. And that's free speech. And therefore you can't restrict it. And they won. And because they won, we got e-commerce, you got the ability to have end-to-end -end encryption, you got mobile devices, you got Bitcoin. Like none of that happens without this, this ruling in the United States saying you, it's okay to publish cryptography and because code is, code is free speech. And, and I think what, what has sort of maybe hasn't quite hit retail, but that the tech industry is really, really up in arms about, pun intended, is uh, this struck at the heart of, is code free speech? And, and what Treasury and OFAC did here was they essentially sanctioned a piece of code, right? They, they put that contract address on this list. And that's not, a, that's not a human and that's not a business. So there's no social security number. There's no TIN. There's no company with a bank account, which is what Blender was. Um, and that's why everybody's very, very upset. Um, I actually, though, I think that the approach that Coinbase and Coin Center are using here is a very risky approach. Like, it's not clear to me that going to the courts is going to result in what the industry wants, because it's not clear to me, because I don't think the judges necessarily understand the nuance here. And I think explaining, like explaining the idea of a smart contract and how that can hold money and then why you can't sanction that thing because it, it's not a business and it's not a person. It just lives in the cloud. It doesn't even live in a Like that is so complicated. Like to, to the average, you know, federal circuit judge that, you know, is maybe in their 60s and, and you know, has not ever used Bitcoin or Ethereum. Like we are asking for, for people to come up to speed on very complicated, nuanced issues um, that they may not fully understand and then asking them to rule on the legality of something. That's like a it's not clear to me that that's the that that's that's the approach that you want to take because the the outcome may not be very desirable. But what is the what is the what is the better approach? I mean, if it's not that approach, one option yeah. is to leave it alone. That's yeah. a mistake. That's a mistake. We can't, we can't leave it alone. Yeah. So so the only way to actually fight this is what what's been happening. That's congressmen, Congress people, Congress people yeah. putting uh, um, writing letters to Janet Yellen and and, and other members and going legally to the courts and just hoping that you get a, a smart judge um, and you can educate a judge on exactly what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. The other thing which I think here is, if you think about a, a, a cost for Coinbase here, so, I mean, I don't know what the costs are, but let's call it very low millions of dollars. Very, very low. I mean, it can't, it can't yeah. be much more than that. It's a very small case. But for Coinbase, it's great marketing. 
So already people are saying, you know, we've run, we've won respect for Brian Armstrong. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's, and he's turning out to be this hero who's, who's, you know, really fighting for crypto rights. Um, and to me, you know, when I take that and I compare it to a nationwide marketing campaign that Coinbase would do, and, you know, that will cost him $5 million. I don't know what, what the numbers are, but that's, that's a $5 yeah, million. Expense. That's absolutely right. This was, this was an easy couple right. of hundred thousand. From a PR, like branding, you know, uh, champion of the people perspective, uh, Coinbase crushed it. It was absolutely the right thing to do from that perspective. I think there's a third option, though, Ron, that um, is not either let them do what they want and, and take it to the courts, which is really, really actively engage them to, to address this issue. This is, you know, this is sort of like if you, if you think of these entities, well, first thing, like the U.S. government is not a monolith, right? There's, there's SEC, there's CFTC, there's Treasury, there's OFAC, there's FinCEN, there's the White House, there's Congress people, there's senators, there's there staffers, like, you know, when you zoom into that, there's Republicans and Democrats, there's different states, like, it's it's not a monolith, right? And, and I think um, you can't think of it as a monolith. And, and I think part, some parts of the government are, are anti crypto, and some parts are actually very pro. And so I think, you know, if you think of each of these agencies, or each of these Congress people or senators as a human relationship that you need to manage, like, if you have, like, you know, if, if like, Hasib and I had an argument, and I immediately took it public and took it to Twitter and, and took it to court, like that burns a lot of goodwill, right? And at the end of the day, a lot of these things are humans that need to save face, right? This is, like, this is Ukraine and, and Russia. This is like, you know, South China Sea. This, these are like at the end of the day, humans making decisions about stuff. And if you don't give people an out that lets them save face, it's only going to escalate, right? And that's what I worry about in this situation, which is why I think the tactic may blow up in your face is like, as soon as you start to escalate, instead of de-escalating and allowing the humans behind it to save face, you're actually, you're actually, I think, asking for the, like the variance of potential outcomes goes way open. So I think the third option is you go to them and you engage them and you figure out a way for them to undo this. When I think, and I think if you if you talk to these people, and I have talked to some folks in Treasury, like they get it, but you got to give them a way to stay face and get out. I agree with you. The problem with what you're saying is that it's too soft and it doesn't create a precedent. And that means that it could happen again. Whereas if we go to court then we get a precedent and the precedent is a ruling and the ruling can be used as a precedent in, in other cases, then it's like we've plugged the hole forever. I think your approach is a great approach, but I think you may be plugging one hole. And I don't think this is about tornado cash anymore. I think this is, tornado cash is, is, is but very I, but, I think, but, but the thing is, I think we already have the precedent, which is, which is Bernstein versus Department of Justice. So I don't think we need another precedent, right? And so all your, like, the only option, kind of like the merge is priced in, is kind of like, well, we already have the precedent. So if you take it to court, the only thing you have is, you know, the potential for, for somebody to rule against that precedent. Whereas, like, we already know that, that that's established. And I think if you if you work to say, hey, look, we already have the pre like if you enter the, the conversation with, look, the precedent is already set. You guys, you guys made a mistake here. And now we got to figure out how you undo the mistake because it's clear that you're wrong relative to historical precedent. I think that's better because now you're not there's zero risk that you challenge the precedent. And, and we've seen in the U.S. courts that like things that we thought were precedent for 30, 40, 50 years. If they make it to the Supreme Court, it may no longer be precedent, right? Like that can get over to, over, overturned. And so I think it's, it's actually a very risky strategy. I think it's brilliant from a PR perspective, but I think from like a, like a legal strategy, like you know, actually undoing this thing perspective, it's, it's actually quite risky. I, I think it is risky. If you look though at um, Katie Hahn's right, I don't know what your thoughts were on the piece that she wrote. Her, her claim is that she doesn't think the free speech claim really uh, succeeds. Um, there have been cases in the past of the SEC uh, prosecuting people who just published code, but the code that they published was like, you know, a, 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 some, some kind of um, wash trading bot, right? Yeah. And like people, people have, people have been put in, in, in prison for writing and, and releasing wash trading software and then also selling it because the idea is like, yes, okay, it's one thing to write code. It's another thing to like intentionally try to put it out there in order to facilitate crime. Um, we know that writing things to facilitate crimes is illegal despite freedom of speech. So the, uh, according to Katie Hahn, again, I, I'm not obviously as far as you can be from a lawyer, um, according to her legal analysis or the legal analysis she endorses, um, the better claim is one of unreasonable search and seizure, uh, which is, you know, in the Fourth Amendment. And uh, it's, it's, the, the reality is it's, it's a complicated legal issue. Yeah. It, it's not easily resolved by just kind of, you know, cracking open a textbook and saying, well, look at this precedent, because there's so much. Uh, there, there's so much obvious departure when you're talking about smart contracts, you're talking about on-chain privacy, you're talking about North Korea using this thing to hack funds, talking about is the front end decentralized, is the back end decentralized, who can yeah. actually change the smart contracts. There's, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of nuance that I think even people in crypto don't fully understand. Yeah. Um, and usually when you have a very complex situation like that, 
that's where you need a fact finder, like a, a court, a judge. You know, now, now look, I agree with you. There are obviously most judges in the world would be totally ill suited to be able to rule on this question. But I think that's on the, you know, it's 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 on the plaintiffs to try to figure out how do we make sure that we get this in front of the right judge who has the the technical sophistication to be able to resolve this question. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. It is risky. It's very risky. And, and and my concern is, I mean, I think we have to fight this fight eventually. I think we're, we're going to have to put some precedents on the book all, all over the world. Like, I think this this is going to happen. But would I rather have this happen today or would I rather have this happen in five or seven or 10 years when we have, you know, 30 Coinbase level companies and, you know, an entire industry that's built muscle around how to actually interface with the government? Because right now, I mean, compare, compare crypto to like the banking industry. We're total noobs. Like, we don't actually understand how to interface with the government in any meaningful way. And, and like until we build that muscle, I think we're actually operating at a pretty significant disadvantage when it comes to using tools like this. So I totally get it from Coinbase's uh, perspective. I think it's a brilliant PR move. Yeah, I, I was about to say. Extremely risky. I think I think the great PR from Coinbase. I think little brilliant. to lose, little to lose, lots to gain here. Um, yeah, what have we got? Ten more minutes. I just want to pivot to to near conference. I think we're all speaking here. You you're speaking, Hasib. Abshal, are you speaking as well? I am speaking. We, Maria Maria on our team is speaking. I unfortunately can't make it out, but Maria. Is okay. but I'm a huge fan of near. Yeah, so we'll, I'll be there. I'll be speaking. I'm interested to know what you expect from the conference. Are you expecting any kind of news? Are you expecting – it's their second – their first one was a very small uh, uh, Neocon. It's their second one. It seems like it's going to be slightly bigger. What are, you expecting, what are you expecting from the conference? I don't really know what to expect. Um, there's – I mean, it, it does seem like, you know, kind of like every blockchain in, in a bear market, things are relatively quiet. Um, you know, there's there's some anticipation of Sweatcoin, which I think is one of the larger, or Sweat Economy, one of the larger projects that are building on top. I know that if you chose an investor in Near, I, well, I'm sorry, investor in Sweatcoin, we're both yeah. investors in Near. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, to my mind, things are things are coming along. They're making progress on their sharding roadmap. Um, they're just shipping, and that's kind of what you want to see in a bear market: is people just shipping and not getting distracted yeah. with a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, I actually think the, the Near team. Um, over-indexes on their, on their shipping and under-indexes on their ability to talk about anything. <laughs> it's just not, they're not good at chilling. They're not, they're, they're not good marketers. They're not good marketers. They're the opposite of marketers. They're the opposite of marketers. Long-term, I think, is actually will work in their favor. Like, I think on balance, right, do you want to be too too good at building and a little bit not good at marketing? Or do you want to be, like, too good at marketing and not good at building? Like, I think on balance, it'll actually work in their favor. Um, it'll actually prevent them from blowing up basically. And then, you know, they keep going and over a five, seven, 10 year time horizon, like, you know, they, they actually have a real shot, I think, because they're real builders. I don't know. I remember that a wise man once said on the show that, uh, technology is, uh, blockchain is about, I think he said 50% about religion and 50% about technology. <laughs> and I think he said it about Cardano specifically. I think he said it about Cardano specifically. Sounds right. <laughs> I think he had a very bad weekend after that. After he spoke, Ill of it was Kodan. fun. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for thanks for throwing me to the wolves. There, it was, it was a good time. Um, I did well. Yeah. I, so, no. As a as as an update, a trip report from my uh, interaction with the Cardano community. Um, I I talked some shit about Cardano on the show. I think last time I was on, they um, they jumped me. They were like, "What the hell is going on here?" And they they taught me a lot about Cardano. I'm now a lot more knowledgeable about Cardano. I spent. A yeah. good a good weekend, um, really diving into everything that they're doing. It's interesting, still not my cup of tea, but um, I, I I definitely have to admit that there's a lot going on there on the technology side. I still think they've got a lot of work to do in order to catch up with the with the leading L ones. But uh, it's definitely not a you know in, in terms of the intellectual progress that they've made. And there's a lot of stuff that actually other proof of stake chains have borrowed from. Uh, from Cardano, like Ouroboros was a, a precedent for a lot of the proof of stake innovations that have happened since then. So they've done some stuff. I, I still think they 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 uh, they lean too academic and not enough on just building things that people want and people enjoy. Uh, but I, I, I think it's it's clear that there's a real there's there's a real environment community there. So I have I to. See, I think I think the question everybody wants to know is how much how much Cardano did you buy? Did you load up? You know, I can't. I can't speak to my positions. We're a regulated fund, so unfortunately, I can't. I can't say that. But once we're done accumulating, I can maybe be a little more. I just want to say for the record. I just want to say for the record that I haven't said a word since you started talking about Cardano. You've been so diplomatic, man. Right? <laughs> I, 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 very impressive. Only the because way I want to have a good weekend. And I don't, 
Yeah, I don't feel like my Twitter timeline being destroyed the whole weekend. So I'm not going to say a word about Cardano. I do want to go back to Nia. So we said it's 50, you said it's 50% technology and 50% religion. It feels to me like Nia ticks 50 out of 50 for the 50% on technology and about 2 out of 50 when it comes to religion, unfortunately. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that's what they need to improve on. They need to, they need to grow the muscle of becoming more of a religious yeah. community. And it's, it's tough because not every founder can also be a great pundit. And you kind of need, you need both. You need to be both a preacher and a technologist, right? And a technological leader. There, there are very few technologists who manage to be both in the same person. Um, you know, Vitalik is probably the, the most obvious example and kind of unexpe un un unexpectedly, if you'd known Vitalik in you know, a way, way back in the day, you would have wow, he's such a bad leader. Uh, Charles, I think he has that. I think he has that element. I think Goon has that element. I think Sandeep has that element. Gavin Wood. Um, uh, Gavin, Gavin, definitely. Gavin, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think even Dom has certain elements, although I think he kind of yeah, has yeah. a weird way of expressing it. Um, but uh, near, I think they 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 kind of need to you know grow a couple crazy bones and like get get a little more intense in order to really activate their community the way that a lot of these other chains do. How important is Aurora when it comes to, to Nia? I mean, Aurora being the EVM, you can't really call it a chain because technologically it's not actually a chain, it's just a contract. But I mean, how yeah. important is Aurora in the ecosystem? Extremely. Aurora is very, very important. important. Yeah. yeah, very, very important. Totally. For, for folks who don't know, it's the EVM compatible layer on top of Nier. And it, it, you're right, it is a smart contract. It, it, you can loosely call it an L2. And then you can you can execute Ethereum contracts, and, and then but then ultimately you're getting executed on, on the Nier chain. I think it's extremely important because it's actually driving the fundamental usage of the chain. And so, you know, over time, kind of back to what we were talking about before, ultimately what's going to matter is the use cases, right? If people are actually using the thing, then that, that's the thing that gets the flywheel going. That brings in more developers because they see the users and the users have more things to do. And then as the developers and the users sort of enter a positive flywheel, then, then, then people who want to own, you know, the thing and use it, you know, come in more and more and you're creating the demand side of it. So I think it's, it's tremendously important. And we see, I mean, you see a lot of activity there. There's, there's real stuff being built on top of Aurora. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys, let's leave it at that for today. I'll see, uh, see if I'll see you at uh, Neocon next week. I wish I guess we won't see you there, have right? Fun. Yeah, have fun, guys. Amazing. Guys, thank you so, so, so much. Good to see you guys again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Take care. And to yeah. the Banter fam, don't go anywhere, don't go anywhere, don't get, don't get anywhere. I do have a couple of announcements for you guys. First of all, once again, I do want to thank our sponsors, NordVPN. Um, as I said before, for $3 a month, you can protect your crypto. And if you're going to protect your crypto, use the VPN that is the crypto VPN. Nord is the crypto VPN. It's, it's the one that's made for crypto users. That's what it is. Uh, you'll hide your IP address. You'll stay completely anonymous. Exchanges won't know which jurisdictions you're trading from. And that's, you know, a lot of my friends, I'm, I'm not going to say anyone should do this, but a lot of my friends that live in the United States, they trade on all the exchanges that they're not supposed to trade with, like Bybit, um, using a VPN, and no one knows any better. Now, I don't recommend anyone do that. I'm just saying that you can do that. You can do it. Also, this is the important part. So listen up, listen up, listen up. There is a, there is a link in the description below to the Banter uh, Discord. you got to get onto that Discord. As you can see, we've got 16,500 members on this Discord. This, this Discord is about two weeks old. Um, all the best calls are happening here in this Discord. So Sheldon's got a section, as you can see. Kyle's got a section. And then there's like the secret weapon that you know, we don't bring him on the show because he's very shy, but we call him the Bombay Trillionaire. Now, he's definitely the best trader at Banter. He, he was the best in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the trading competition, et cetera. And you can actually get all his calls live. Now, a lot of calls that have come through in the last couple of days have been on this Discord before. The Discord is absolutely free. Okay, so anyone can go onto Discord. Um, have been on this Discord so you before. Can just click on this link over here. That takes you to the Discord. Um, click it. Go there. It's absolutely free. To get into some sections, you've got to sign up with one of our referral links, and that really supports the channel. So do it. You can sign up using the referral links over here. Also, lastly, remember that last month, we said that if 200 of you take out a CoinStats membership, then we'll give away a Bitcoin. And like 190 of you took out the CoinStats membership. So we're doing it again. Go to CoinStats. Um, take it out, and if over 200 of you take out a CoinStats membership in the month of September, then one of you guys will win an actual Bitcoin. Anyway, that's it from me for today. I'm going to be back uh, sometime on the weekend, and if not, I'll be back on Monday from Neocon and uh, covering the merge and covering the inflation numbers on Tuesday and Wednesday and whatever else. I'll see you guys again then. Until then, have fun and trade well, my friends.
Give each a 